Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We have started eight weeks ago or so a series through the book of Revelation. As we've gone through the Bible, Revelation is the final book, and we've gone through every other book, and so now we're going through Revelation. We, we spent the last seven weeks looking at each of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These were letters that were put on the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation is, the proper title of it is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book that basically tells what's going to happen in the future um, and, and ultimately what that tells us about Jesus and how we see him. But at the beginning of the book are these seven letters addressed specifically to the seven churches there in Turkey whereby this letter was going to be circulated and it would go to each of these seven churches that each resided in a different postal zone in that area of the world. They were actual churches and these letters, as we've seen, apply specifically to these churches, but Jesus chose seven churches because he's also speaking to the whole church. Some people have taken it to be a survey through church history and there may be an element of that, I, uh, I'm not sure, I, I don't emphasize that, it seems like it's a little forced to me, but, but it certainly applies to the church throughout history, but it applies to the church universal. That's why there are seven of them, the complete package of what Jesus wants to say to the church. And in these letters, as we've seen, there are messages to us as believers in Jesus Christ, warnings and encouragements and things like that, but there is also, and, and this is primary, we see Jesus revealed in his many-faceted relationship with the church. And so it's been enjoyable for me going through these seven letters and saying, here's what Jesus wants to say to us. And so I just, since we finished the seventh one last week, I just couldn't leave it without going back through them again and just a quick review and then what we're looking for is the bottom line, what's the message that Jesus is trying to communicate to us and to his church? So going back to Revelation chapter 2, we'll review quickly. The first letter was to the church in Ephesus. And they, their deal is they were doing good things. There was so much good that he had to say about them. They had hung in there. They were patient. However, verse 4 I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The problem with the church in Ephesus, they hadn't started doing a bunch of bad things. They were still doing things that were good. But somehow their hearts had been affected. And leaving your first love is either referring to that love that you had at first in terms of time, or it also refers to the love that you have that's primary, that is of the greatest importance. And you certainly see here, Jesus wants to be involved in the lives of his people. He, he prefaced this letter by saying that I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. Those are the leaders of the churches. I have those pastors in my hand, and I walk in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, and those were representative of the churches, as we saw in chapter 1. 
So Jesus is going, I'm trying to be involved. I have you in my hand. I am walking among you. Where I do what I do, it happens in the church. And this is something that we see throughout the New Testament. Where God works, where Jesus lives, is in the middle of God's people. It's not simply a one-on-one thing. It's a corporate thing. But it has very personal implications as well. So what happens when a church leaves their first love? Well, there are really two ways to leave a primary love, an essential love. And one of them is to fall in love with something else. One of them is to look for an alternative to that love. We see this happen in relationships all the time. Someone's madly in love with someone else, and it goes for a while, and eventually they fall in love with something or someone else, and that detracts away. They can fall in love with their job. They can fall in love with an inanimate object or toys. They can fall in love with a group of friends. They can fall in love with a TV world. Um, Or they can fall in love with another person. Most people who say, you know, I've fallen out of love in a marriage, it's they're generally pulled away partly by reality, but partly by an attraction somewhere else. It's always said that, at least for men, when a man says, I just want out of this relationship, and it's not about you, it's about me, and I'm just not feeling fulfilled, what it generally means is, I found somebody else. Men generally don't leave a relationship unless they at least have someone warming up in the bullpen as a possibility. (laughs) So... So you can leave your first love by falling in love with something else. And there was certainly an element of that. And it's easy because here in the church at Ephesus, they were doing good things. And sometimes you can leave your, lose your first love by getting, falling in love with doing things instead of remembering why you did those things in the first place. But the heart is affected and is lost. And Jesus wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to be in the center of what we're doing. And he's just going here to the Ephesians, "Uh, excuse me, you guys have gotten beyond me. You've left me. I want to be involved in your lives. And there was a time when you were passionate about me. There was a time when you were motivated by a love for me. And now, I don't know, you're motivated by something else. But falling in love with something else is one way to leave your first love, but there's another way that's probably more common and perhaps more dangerous. You can leave your first love by giving up on love. You can leave your first love by settling for something less than love, by letting your life evolve into just going through the motions. And you're just like, you know what? Love has hurt me enough. I'm just going to tone it down. I'm not going to look for love anymore. I'm not going to be idealistic. I'm just going to settle for my existence. And I don't care whether I ever love again. I don't care whether I ever feel that passionate affection again, that intimacy and closeness again. I'm just going to survive. I'm just going to try to make it. And that's really sad. Because when we settle for something less than primary love, either by loving other things that are not worthy of our love or by just deciding to not love at all, what we are saying is, Jesus, I know that you want to be a part of my life. I get that, but you know what? 
I just don't have it in me anymore. I'm not feeling it. It's not working. And what he said to the Ephesians is, he's like, man, if you overcome, I'll give you to eat from the tree of life, which is in the middle of the paradise of God. He said, I have for you this beautiful future that involves total fulfillment and pure love, life itself, feeding on life itself for eternity, but you can't do that. You can't experience that if you're going to love someone else or if you're going to just stop loving because the life that I call you to is a life that love is at the center. The, the Bible says God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 told us, you know what, you can do all kinds of great things. You can speak in tongues. You can, you can have all wisdom and understand all mysteries. You can give everything that you have and give your body to be burned, but if love isn't at the center of it, it's just a, a clanging symbol. It means nothing. It's, it's worthless. So to leave love is to leave what life is about, to leave what Jesus is about, to settle for something less than this close, loving relationship with him. To crowd his love out with other things or to become jaded and give up on love, you're forfeiting a relationship, a vital relationship with him. And that was his warning to the church at Ephesus. To the church in Smyrna, it's a little different. These guys, he doesn't say anything bad to them because they were suffering greatly. And by the way, when someone's suffering greatly, it's not the time to tell them, what they're doing wrong. They already feel responsible. They feel like they've been beat up. Maybe you've been at a point when you were at your low point and somebody tried to fix you. <laughs> People who are hurting need gentle encouragement, but, but they don't need to be told what they're doing wrong. They're already living that. So Jesus lovingly was smart and no doubt they were doing things wrong, but he just comes to them and he tries to encourage them in their suffering. But notice how he chooses to encourage them. He goes, I know what you're doing, you're, the pressure that you're under, the poverty that you're living, even though you have riches you don't know about. And I know people are after you, but verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. And then he goes on and says, the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death in verse 11. So Jesus comes to them and brings a message that says, don't be afraid. You know how many times in the scriptures, I don't, I should have counted it, but you know, over and over again, fear not, don't be afraid. The idea of saying that so many times is because we are prone to fear. And that's what was happening in Smyrna in their hearts. They were doing well, but life seemed to get more difficult. The pressure was on. And they were afraid, and one of the great things they were afraid of was death itself. If I keep going this way, this is going to kill me. And so Jesus comes to them and brings a message that says, you don't have to be afraid even of death. Why? Because as he identified himself there in verse 8, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Jesus comes with the thing that we are most hesitant about and most fearful of, death itself. And he goes, you know what? I have been there. So don't look at what's happening in the future and suppose that, oh, it would be horrible if you died. Death is a blessing to people who know Jesus Christ because death is followed by real life. 
Now, he isn't saying you should have a death wish. He isn't saying that, you know, oh, you know, you're all going to die for your faith. None of you are going to be old. Because a lot of these people in Smyrna would live a good long life. Um, Even their pastor at the time lived for many, many years after this, 30 years or so. So he wasn't saying that. What he was saying was, even if you die, don't live in fear of death. Because fear will completely strangle you from having the life that God wants you to have. And this message that says, you don't have to be afraid because even death doesn't threaten you, is an emboldening, empowering message to people who are in pain. Now, if you're in pain long enough, death becomes a welcome sight. I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm taken care of forever. I know that no matter what happens in this life, I'm gonna be with Jesus forever. And in reality, the fact of death at some point becomes a comforting fact for me. The older I get, the better it sounds. When I, I went to visit a loved one this week in a hospital for older people who are kind of losing it mentally, and I'm looking at these people and I'm just going, you know, my wish is not to live as long as possible. When I start getting to the age where I feel myself fading, and I'm getting there, I would rather go take a missions trip to Afghanistan. <laughs> maybe, maybe buy myself a hang glider for my birthday and, and just go, you know, yeah, I don't wanna be here forever, okay? In the deteriorating condition of my flesh. But at the same time, once I acknowledge that, now, do I want to live life based on fear? What do, what do I have to really be afraid of if the Jesus who loves me has already died and come back? And he says, I'm taking care of you. It's not that I have a death wish. It's that I don't want to live my life afraid of death. Because to live your life afraid of death is to allow your life to be robbed of life itself. The key to life is being able to risk it. The key to life is knowing that death has no power over over you. I think probably one of the boldest guys in the early church was Lazarus, who had already been dead for three days. Like, what do you tell Lazarus? Hey, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kill you. He's like, so? (laughs) I've been there. I like it better than here. Go ahead. And then nobody's going to kill him because they're afraid he'll come back again. (laughs) But that's us. Our lives should have such confidence. We are not motivated by fear because the thing that everyone fears the most is something that has already been won for us. We've already been delivered from it. And so to live courageous lives, even though the fear may be dark, Jesus would say, Believe me, bad things are going to happen, worse than you've experienced. You're all of, some of your best days are ahead of you, but some of your worst days are ahead of you too. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. And that was his basic message to this church in Smyrna. And he said, they can only kill you once. The second death, it's not going to affect you. Death for you is just passing through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil because you know God is with you. Then we have the letter to the church in Pergamos. Jesus comes to these guys and and he says, 
I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. And he, he does penetrate. Now he says, hey, I know you live in a lousy place of a lot of evil people, and you're hanging in there and you're still believing. However, verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. We went back and looked at the story of Balaam. Balaam was an interesting character. He was a guy who was a prophet of God. And when he was functioning in his prophetic office, he was great. He had integrity in his prophesying. And, you know, when Balak tried to hire him and offered to make him famous, if he would only curse Israel, Balaam listened to God and he goes, sorry, Balak, I can only say what God says. So he did great while he was on the job. However, when he was off, when he clocked out, he took away from having, having prophesied with integrity he then went to Balak and said, look, I'm just telling you this off record. This isn't from God. This is just a little bit of friendly advice. Dude, you're trying to get God to curse Israel. Um, what I would do if I were you, get your best looking women and send them over to Israel and, and can have them bring with them some little idols and tell them, you know, hey, you can fornicate with me and you'll be getting close to God. And he said, they'll do it because, frankly, men are just stupid. And it's like, women, I'll give you a free tip. If you want to bail on your husband because you think you're going to find a different guy, every guy is like your husband, okay? <laughs> you're going to figure that out. It's just there are some guys that you've figured out and some you haven't yet. So guys are so easy to entice and so Balaam goes, send the good-looking chicks down there with some idolatry, and God's going to judge his people. You want him to curse his people, get them to compromise. Now, how could a guy who's a prophet of God do that on the side the same way that people who serve God and who, who minister for him and who have this beautiful Christian ministry side to them can completely lead a dual life, can, are completely capable of doing horrible things and not even feeling like it's a contradiction. To sacrifice integrity completely. The same reason why there are people who can come to church on Sunday and worship God and, and love Him and, and be all righteous and everything. And then during the week, they take their God hat off and they're able to be dishonest in their business. They're able to treat people cruelly. They're able to flash into a whole different secret identity. And that's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam is the idea that you can compartmentalize your life. You can, you can partition your life. Integrity, the word integer is a whole number. To live in integrity means you're the same person all the time. But the alternative to that is to split yourself up into pieces. And that's what the doctrine of Balaam is. In a church that does a bunch of good things, he's like, I like what you're doing on Sunday, but I don't like your secrets. I don't like what you are compromising in your relationship with God in that you don't want to be with me all the time. You want me to hang out at church 
and then you can do what you want the rest of the week. It's that which can allow people to be yelling at someone in their family on their way home from church. And you think, what in the world is that? I mean, does, does this not even last you until you get home? I mean, is, is that, you know, oh yeah, boy, what a great message. Hey, what are you doing? And, and you're like, what's happening to you? And it's shocking what some people who do great things in one area of their life are capable of doing when they take that hat off. It's sad, people who can serve God and then they are so opposite that in the rest of their life, that's the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of being on the clock and off the clock, essentially. And what Jesus told these guys in Pergamos, he said, look, I have something for you if you can avoid that. I have in verse 17, I have some hidden manna to eat. I have a special meal for you that people aren't gonna see. I'll give you a white stone and on the stone a new name. And nobody knows it except the one who receives it. He says, I know there's a temptation to live a dual life because you think it's going to somehow enhance your life. But he said, if you will just live a, a life solely for me, if you will just stay in fellowship with me, we will have a special connection. I will feed you in the driest times as I fed Israel in the wilderness. Man, I'm going to take care of you. Don't compromise so that you can eat. He's going to help you to eat. Don't, don't compromise to try to make a name. He has a name. He, he wants to be close to you. He wants to be intimate to you. But it requires your undivided commitment. It requires your not living a split life anymore. And that was his message to Pergamos. And then Thyatira, a little worse there. I mean, these guys, you know, they did some good things, but Jesus came with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like brass. And he says, I see your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience, and you're actually doing better than you used to do. So he's like, man, as a church, you're awesome. However, as he says here, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, in both of these cases, Pergamos and Thyatira, the example of what happens in their lives is that they're participating in the illicit practices of society. But that was happening as a compromise in the church in Pergamos. But here in Thyatira, it was incorporated right into the worship. It was incorporated right into church life and affected the teaching. Now, again, what was happening, as we talked about it before, when we went through this letter, in their society, most of social interaction and politics and everything else happened around these pagan temples. And the pagan temple offered an alternative way of life as opposed to that life which Jesus would call them to. And so it was hard because if you were going to leave your culture to become a Christian, you were going to give up all the parties, all of the you know, great aspects of culture, all the beauty, all the history, tradition, everything. And it, and it was challenging. But there was a woman 
And she's called Jezebel because she's much like the Jezebel in the Old Testament, who was the queen in the northern kingdom when her husband Ahab was king. Jezebel in the Old Testament had told people, you don't have to give up the worship of Jehovah. We just need to liven up the worship of Jehovah. So let's mix in some Baal and some other deities and everything. And hey, they're the ones that are having all the fun. You go there and you can have you know, sexual involvement with prostitutes, and it's like godliness. It's a good thing. So let's just, we need to party up our church a little bit so that, so that we can have the same fun that the world is having as they're going to hell. And this is what this Jezebel was teaching in the church, claiming it as prophecy, calling herself a teacher. And the problem with the church here in Thyatira is they allowed that. Why? Because, you know, you want to be open. And the problem is if the worship center down the street is having more fun than you, who's going to go to yours? And, and so the temptation is always to go, how can we fix up, modernize, bring into the next century the worship of God in a way where people don't feel like they're missing out on all their fun. And so what they were opting for in Thyatira, and they probably didn't let Jezebel teach on Sunday morning. She probably had a little fellowship out back. They kind of allowed it, maybe stuck it in the bulletin, maybe not. But it was like, this is really cool. Because she is telling you, you can have your cake and eat it too. And she's attracting a lot of people. Now, the best way for a church to be attractional is to compromise what the Word of God says and just incorporate a whole bunch of secular philosophy. We can party better than you. We can have a better show than you. We can present our truth in a way that doesn't offend anyone. But here's the problem. What I need more than anything else is for someone to offend me. I have a desperate need because I am stupid and I am prone to doing things in a destructive way. My life is messed up. The basic message of the Bible is you are messed up. And if you can't understand that, then you'll never be fixed. So if every time someone challenges me in my complacency and I just go, you know what? I'm not gonna listen to this. And that's always my first reaction, by the way. My first reaction to convicting truth is always to defend myself, is always to build up barriers. But I need to be offended. However, if people have a choice, they're not going to attend somewhere where they're going to be offended. And so back in those days, as today, there's a great desire to fix Christianity and just not make it so offending, just not make it quite so you know, just serious. Let's really make it, this is the rocking place to be. And, you know, they have their heathenism out there. Hey, we can involve ourselves in that too. We can go party with them. And hey, by being Christians, we set an example. And, you know, yeah, no, no better way to witness to a prostitute than to have sex with her in the name of God. And, <laughs> oh yes, dirty job. Somebody has to do it. But this was happening in their church. And Jesus' message to them is a, is a very serious 
message because he talks about judgment, that he will not allow his word to be perverted. He will not allow somebody to, in his name, prophesy things that are sending people to hell. And so he he says, I'll kill her children with death. Not her literal children, but the people who are following after her are going to be destroyed, judged ultimately. Now that's harsh. That's hard to hear. And on a certain sinful level, I wish it weren't true. I wish it was okay for just everybody to get a message. You know what? You're okay the way you are. Just hang in there. Life is wonderful and everyone's good. And I mean, I would love to just be Oprah with a Bible. But, you know, sorry, people are going to hell. And destruction is coming to many people who will not expect it. And the fact that they're going to church makes them think they're okay. Over and over again, I hear people who lose a loved one say, well, you know, they were, I go, well, did they know Jesus? You know, they were just such good people. If anybody, I mean, they showed love and Love means God, and God is love, and yeah, you know, of course they're, of course they're good. The gospel only saves bad people. It doesn't save good people. It leaves them out in the cold. Because if you're too good to realize you need Jesus, then you are not going to confess your sins and have them be forgiven. And so Jesus is just going, I can't tolerate this. You cannot use syncretism, which means synthesizing your faith based on a little Christian Bible and a little cultural relevance, you can't present that message. Watered down gospel is not a gospel at all. It's just not good news anymore. It's just smiling in deception. And so Jesus is going, people's lives will be destroyed if you allow syncretism to creep into the church. You're destroying people. You're killing them forever by, by making them feel like they're okay when they aren't. It's like, as I've said before, when you mix the word of God with anything else, it's like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't hurt the manure, but it ruins the ice cream. And the ice cream of the gospel is ruined if you go, yeah, we're this, but also, hey, we get a little paganism in the mix too, and that's cool, and I'm sure some pagans are going to be you know, impressed by our presentation that you can have it both ways. You can have your cake and eat it too. Jesus tells the church in Thyatira, no, you can't. I'm going to have to speak clearly to this, and you'll be judged if you try to do that. But, he says, if you hang in there, I'm going to give you power over the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron. I'll give them the morning star. That's Jesus himself. So he goes, you know, it's interesting that you are blending yourself in with worldly thinking. Someday you are supposed to rule the world. Someday you are supposed to participate in the kingdom as a leader, And yet, right now, you're letting the people who you will someday be in in charge of, you're letting them be in charge of you. It's ironic, but what I have for you is a great position of power and victory. And, And you'll get me, ultimately, if you don't water down that which I tell you. And then we come to the church at Sardis in chapter 3. This was a sad church because everyone thought this was a great church. They had an awesome reputation, 
But as he says in, in verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. This is a church that on the outside looked amazing. Everyone thought, if there's a church that's doing it right, it's Sardis. Those guys have it together. But Jesus sees something different. He said, the life that's in you is just an exterior. It's just a game. You're fooling people. You've pretended to be something that you aren't because you care more about what people think of you than you care about who you actually are. And it's sad when we make that, that decision, when we make that move that just, you know... I don't want people to think badly of me. So I'm just going to pretend. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to say all the right things. Hey, praise the Lord, brother. Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to do all that stuff. Get the mushy God talk in my life. I'm, gonna, I'm going to act like everything's fine. And what we need to do is get a big advertising campaign for our church so that we can make people believe that we're a happening place. You know, and, and that's appealing because we always care what people think of us. But Jesus is saying, you haven't noticed. You've got your marketing campaign going and your reputation is impeccable. Somewhere along the line, you actually died and didn't notice it. And, and so the church at Sardis is the church of Weekend at Bernie's. It's the, it's the, it's the church that's just going through the motions because you want everybody to think you're alive and you're actually dead. What Jesus says, if you overcome, forget what people think of you. You'll walk with me in white and be worthy in verse 4. In verse 5, the one who overcomes will be clothed in white garments. You'll, you'll have my provision, my righteousness, and I won't block your name out of the book of life, but I'll confess your name before my Father and before his angels. He seems to be saying to Sardis, you need to choose between your reputation and reality. Because if you will admit that you're broken, if you will admit that you're flawed, if you'll be honest, then I will clothe you with my righteousness. And it doesn't matter what your name is now. It doesn't matter what people think of you now. Stop being a people pleaser. I'm going to confess you before my Father. And your name is written in my book of life. Well, how, how do you, would you rather have your name in the register or in the book of life? Would you rather be known among people as being one of the fastest growing, greatest, most, you know, it's like when these, these newspapers come up and they, and they have people write in to vote for their favorite place of worship. And I don't know who did it, but a few years ago, they must not have many votes. And they had our church. I mean, enough people called in. We didn't do that at all. I see churches now that actually try to get their people to do it. But, you know, for, for some pagan newspaper to say, oh, you're the hip place to be for God, really? When your name is in the book of life, is that, is that something you really care what OC Weekly says about you? A throwaway paper? And Jesus is just saying to Sardis, Stop worrying about what people think. Be concerned that somewhere inside you died along the way and all that's left of you is a phony shell. And 
We'll hurry through the rest of these, running out of time, trying to get end on time. Church of Philadelphia, the church that was tired of pushing doors and having them slammed in their faces. And Jesus came to them and said, I have a door that's open for you. And when I open the door, nobody's going to shut it. I have a path. I have a future. There are good things that I want to do in your life. Don't lose heart. And don't keep fighting to bang down doors that, that I've closed. You can't open them when I close them. But he, he goes on and says, if you hang in there, hang on to what you have, no one is going to take your crown away. And the one who overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of my God. These Christians in Philadelphia who were frustrated with not finding the open doors, he says, don't worry, because I have a future for you. And though you may struggle in insignificance your whole life, when it matters, you're going to be a pillar. You're going to be important. The door that I open for you will be amazing, and you would never want to knock down a door that I haven't opened for you. I have a plan for your life. And ultimately, what that results in, you're going to have the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is going to be on you, and I'll write on you my new name. Intimate connection with me, he says, as an alternative to... Um, you know, just, again, pushing, pushing, striving, struggling. He's going, don't worry. You'll know my door when you see it. Make sure you take it. Make sure you go through. And then finally, last Sunday, as we looked at the church of Laodicea, problem with these guys, I mean, they were okay church, but they were satisfied the way they were. They didn't want to change. It's one of the greatest traps, by the way, in, in church, it destroys churches everywhere. As soon as people just say, you know what? I'm fine the way I am. I just don't want it to change. Anytime you suggest making changes, people get insecure because they go, it's not that great the way it is, but I'm afraid if we change it, it's going to get worse. Well, that was these guys. They're like, you know what? I'm fine the way I am. I'm rich. Things are good. Go take it to the pagans were fine, not realizing that they were poor, wretched, blind, naked, not realizing their need. They were satisfied being lukewarm. They were, they were satisfied just being okay. They were satisfied with mediocre. They had given up on getting anything heating up or cooling off. They had lost their passion. And where in this letter he tells them to get zealous, the word there is get boiled up, heat up. Don't settle for lukewarm. Don't settle for just being okay. Realize you're not okay, and the Lord will come and bless you. And what he offers them is a chance to sit down with close fellowship. I'm knocking on the door. Let me in. We'll fellowship together. I'll sup with you and you with me. Beautiful truth. Now, let's just look at all of these and see what in the world they have in common? What's the message if there's a central message? As far as Jesus is concerned, it's really clear. The central heart of Jesus is, I want to bless you in the future, and I want you to be close to me. I want to have fellowship with you. And that's what he communicates in all of these letters, is his desire to sit down and fellowship with us, spend time with us, have a love relationship with us. His letters to the churches 
On the other hand is, don't settle for substitutes of what I offer. Don't modify my plan. Don't compromise what I call you to. I want you to stick with the simplicity of a pure relationship with me. Now in Ephesus, they began to substitute that first love with other things that they loved or with just the, the less passionate and less demanding life of no love. In Smyrna, because of fear, they were really willing to trade away all that they had endured and have it be for nothing because they were just afraid. And, and in uh, Pergamos, they were trading away the truth of what God was doing in their life by compromising and just going, I don't have to do this 24-7, do I? Can I take time out? And they thought that they could do other things on the side and have that work, and it doesn't. The church in Thyatira just decided to pollute the truth, to bring in teaching that was not consistent with God's word, but it was syncretistic. That's a sad substitute for the reality. The church in Sardis, they decided to worry about their reputation more than the reality. They got to a point whereby promotion and marketing and advertising became what they lived for the most. They were most concerned about pleasing people and they were settling for that as opposed to pleasing God. And again, what a sad substitute when God says, man, I, I'm gonna clothe you in white. Your name is written in my book in heaven. Really, that's not enough? You really want to be on Larry King or Pierce Morgan or whatever? You, is, that, is that a bigger deal? Do you think you need posters when your name is in the book of life? Sad substitute. In Philadelphia, they had grown tired of pushing on doors, but they thought, you know what? Either I'll sit here and never try another door, or maybe if I keep waiting long enough, one of these doors is going to open. And he goes, you'll find my door, and it'll be open, and nobody can close it, because I want to have fellowship with you. And, and then finally in Laodicea, eh, we're okay the way we are. Sacrificing fellowship with God for a complacency and a self-confidence that, that pretends that you don't have need when you do. And again, Jesus is inviting us to have fellowship with him. He wants that intimacy. But there are other ways to do church. There are other ways to live life than to take the time to fellowship with Jesus, to take the time to have a dinner with him, to have some quality time with him, to draw close to him, to put everything else out of the way and focus on him. Jesus offers the one thing that will completely fulfill our lives for all of eternity, and that is a relationship with him. The world offers, and the church offers, a bunch of alternatives, and Jesus calls them out for what they are, a bunch of phony substitutes that will ultimately destroy that which you were born to experience, that which will rob you of that abundant life that Jesus promised to you. And so the message is clear, and I love it. His message to the churches before he, and next week we'll start into his visions of the future and everything. And, and 
before that happens, he just wanted to make it clear. What all of this is about is I want to be close to you. I want to be closer to you than anyone else is. I want to fellowship with you. You're special to me. You are personally special to me, and I have an awesome future for the people who will not settle for cheesy substitutes of real spiritual vitality and joy. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Please just apply this to our hearts and help us to live those lives that you've called us to live, those lives of fulfillment. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.